Well, today, guys, I want to talk to you about kindness. Uh, we've been in this series, started last week, leaning back in today, talking about intentional Christmas. And what I want to try to help us be this Christmas is people who are intentionally kind. Kindness, I think, is at the heartbeat of Christmas. One of the things that we got to experience at our Christmas here at MCC was this thing that we do called our Kindness Works Christmas Party. It was an absolute blast. I loved it. I'm going to show you a few pictures from it here. Um, there's just so many big smiles, so many big hugs. There's so many unexpected things that happen that you just kind of got to roll with in the moment. It is an absolute blast. You get to play basketball. Uh, the cha-cha line or the mamba line, I don't know exactly what you call it. Um, I'll refer to your best knowledge on that. Uh, but that was a huge hit. Um, yeah, it was just an absolutely amazing event that we got to have as a church. And one of the things that I just kind of walked away from that event knowing was kindness really does work. And it's, it's, it's crazy that you kind of throwing the name of kindness works. Well, it really does. But the other side of that, to simplify the name a little bit, kindness takes works. Like we can say we love people all we want. We can say that our church values the special needs families in our community, but if we don't actually allow that love to work itself out in kindness, well then what really is that love? See, what I've come to know is that kindness is what love looks like. And this year, I know that there's many of us who need to feel love and there's many of us who want to give love, but I'm gonna to talk to you about today is that that love, what it really comes out of and what it really looks like when it gets out of our hearts and in through our bodies into other people is it comes out as kindness. And I'm gonna make this argument that kindness is really at the heart of Christmas. That really when you look at the Christmas narrative as a whole, what you see is God in his loving kindness sending Jesus in this pure form of kindness to earth to say, I want to rebuild this broken relationship between humanity and divinity. And I'm sending my son into this earth out of kindness to redeem and to restore. I love the way Apostle Paul, he was writing to one of his young protégés as he's trying to uh, set up the church for long-term success. He's pouring into other leaders and he writes this letter to a young man named Titus. And he says these words to his protégé, Titus. He says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's a rich, rich verse. Part of that is the reason I even named my kid what I named him, because I hit that verse in the book. And I was like, wow, that's rich. I don't want to camp out on that first part of verse four. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. So the question here, last week I asked you a lot of questions. I'm going to ask you a few less this week, but I'm going to ask you one here. When did that loving kindness of God appear? The saving kindness of the love of, of, the love of God, it appears there in the manger. Like we knew that if you read throughout the Old Testament, you could see that there was this Messiah figure that was coming. But what we see happening in the Christmas story is God that we can now see with unveiled faces. So this loving kindness of God, our Savior, Jesus, appears there in a manger to a teenage girl and a young man. And the point that I want us to not miss in this is that the birth of the Son is what initiated this intentional plan from the Father to bring restoration to the relationship 
that had been broken between divinity and humanity. Now, again, don't get this twisted. The relationship wasn't broken because God was angry. The relationship was broken because we had sinned. It was on us that the relationship was broken. And it was going to take someone coming and living a life among us perfectly so that we could be redeemed and restored. It was our selfish sin that drew the wedge between humanity and divinity. And we have felt the pull and the pain caused by sin from the moment that Adam and Eve's teeth broke the, core, the rind of the apple. And here we are. And we see this brokenness around us. And there's this urging and longing for hope that we can experience and be real. But deep inside of all of us, even the most super saved of us in the room, there's still this reality and truth that as long as we still have this flesh on, there's still aspects of selfishness in us. There's things that we want for Christmas. There's things that I hope people do for Christmas. There's things that, that I have my opinions on. There's things that are deep inside of me that still, no matter how hard I try and how frustrated they make me, I still have selfishness. And the ugly truth about selfishness in regards to our relationships, the selfishness is the death of relationships. It was the death of the relationship there in the garden. When the intimacy that was between Adam and Eve and their father God was broken, the relationship as it was was over. There was now enmity between God and man that this perfect and holy God could not walk with and talk with Adam and Eve the way he did before. There was death in the relationship, and even them, they would die themselves because God said, okay, if you eat of the fruit of the garden, you will surely die. See, selfishness is the death of relationship. It is the slow killer of so many relationships. If you look around and you see a marriage that is hanging by a thread, you will likely see a marriage that is full of selfishness. If you look around and you see Finances, they're falling apart. Usually selfishness is at the center of it. If you look around at parent-to-kid relationships and it's falling apart, usually selfishness, one party or the other, is at the root of it. If you look around and you find a church that is falling apart and people are leaving and there's all sorts of drama and all sorts of backbiting and all sorts of mistrust and all sorts of gossip, usually selfishness is right at the core of it because selfishness kills relationships. But there is some good news this holiday season. And the good news is, kindness. Where selfishness is the death of relationships, kindness is actually the life of relationships. So if you look around and you see a marriage, that marriage is not just going to be good because the husband and wife stood on a stage one day in front of their whole friends and in front of the witness of God and a pastor and said, we love each other and we commit to be together forever. Yes, there is love, but love had to come out of them in the form of kindness to each other. Kindness is at the heart of that relationship flourishing. If you look around at a relationship between kids and adults and parents, those relationships are thriving because the kids have shown what kindness looks like and the parents have seen that kindness and there's kindness flowing back and forth in that relationship. If you look around and you look at churches that are thriving, there's the places that you want to attend, things you want to be a part of. Kindness, Christ-inspired kindness is at the core because the people that go there, they believe the best about each other. They sacrifice their own personal preferences for the hope of reaching more people for the gospel. They know deep down in their heart that gospel-centered unity within the church is far more important than traditions of the church, far more important than the decorations of the church, far more important than the events of the church, and far more important than their own personal preferences about what should happen. Now, 
in those inevitable moments where things will happen at a church, right? Because it's people. Like we're all going to have times where we get along and then we're going to have times where we may disagree. Well, what kindness does is in the midst of disagreement, those inevitable moments when disagreements happen, they, with ruthless kindness, and I'm going to come back to that word in a second, with ruthless kindness, they refuse to gossip. They refuse to believe anything but the best about each other. They refuse to voice complaints and concerns to other people before they voice those complaints and concerns to God. See, that's what kindness does. And if you look around and you see a family, a church, a workplace even, that is thriving, I would be more than willing to bet kindness, gospel-centered, Christ-inspired, kindness to each other is at the heart of it. Because you know this, you've experienced this. We have times where we, we're gonna disagree on things. We have times where we're gonna want things our way. We have times when we're gonna expect things to be met and done in certain ways. And the awesome thing about a people whose knee-jerk reaction is kindness is it puts us in this place to do one of the most absolute controversial and countercultural things that you can do in 2022 while there's still time left, which is to love, honor, and respect somebody that you disagree with. You guys didn't know I was going to be so countercultural and controversial today, did you? All right. If you haven't looked, everything in the media, everything that you read online is purposely there to divide. When Jesus was getting ready to go be crucified, when he knew that he was gonna depart from the Father and he finds himself praying for the church, like maybe you didn't realize this about Jesus, but Jesus literally prayed for you, prayed for us as a church body. Do you know what he prayed for? He didn't pray that, oh man, I just hope that they have really good preachers and they're really eloquent and they can just preach God's word really good. I hope they have great music leaders. I hope children's ministries, great. I hope a lot of people show up and there's just a lot of big old crowd and they have six flags over Jesus every weekend. Those are not the things that he prayed for the church. When he prayed for the church, he said, please let them be unified. Bring, bring unity to that place. Bring unity. Now, here's what you need to understand. The only way that unity can happen is if kindness happens. Now, let me just break a hard truth to you. And you've probably realized this. I'm gonna talk specifically about our church. As our church will continue to grow, kindness becomes even more important. And here's why. Because as a church grows, unity becomes harder. And if you look around, you look at how our church is growing. Our church is not growing homogeneously, which means it's not growing one color. For those of you who are like, what? Are we a plant? Um, <laughs> sorry. So that's going to be even harder because now we're not talking about people who, who, who think the same and vote the same and come from the same culture and background. We're talking about people who come from all sorts of different cultures and backgrounds, have all sorts of different preferences and opinions. So, so hear me on this. As our church grows and it grows even in diversity, Unity is going to become not easier, harder. And this, you've experienced this if you have kids. Anybody grow up in a house where there's more than four kids in the house? Right? Anybody have more than four kids? Okay. So, so it, whether or not you've experienced that, when you had two kids in the house, you know, unity was easier to maintain. <laughs> but then you get four of them. You get four teenagers in the same house, 
Unity is hard to come by unless the kids are kind. And so the point that I'm trying to make is I I pray that God continues to increase us, double, triple, all those things. I want that to happen. I want the light of Christ to shine brightly through the church that is MCC. But I want us to be people who give each other the gift of kindness through it all. And if we're gonna stay unified through that and not wreck the ship, so to speak, we're going to have to have gospel-centered kindness flow through our veins so that when people bump into people that go to MCC, they may be like, I don't know if I I agree with everything that they believe doctrinally as a church, and I wouldn't do what they're doing, but here's what I know about those people. They are the most kind people I've ever walked into. Now listen, let's be honest. Do you know what church people aren't really known for? Being kind. Okay? And, and sometimes, sometimes it's fake kindness. And so what I want us to understand is that this kindness that we're after here is not manufactured, guys. It's not something that you can pull out of yourself and pretend to have. It's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Okay? It's something that Holy Spirit's gonna be. And I believe we're, we're a Holy Spirit-filled church. And I don't want that kindness to come out through us. And so I, I would invite you to, to pray with me to say like, Jesus, we want to continue to be a unified, growing, healthy church. But if that's gonna happen, we're gonna have to embody this uncommon kindness. The kids are gonna have to be kind. And I believe that's possible. And I believe it, it can happen. And I want it to happen here with us. And because here's what's cool. It's a gift that we get to give each other this uncommon gift of kindness. Beautiful thing about kindness, but it's also kind of brutal, is that what kindness does is kindness confronts and it kills selfishness. It confronts and it kills selfishness. Now, those words don't usually go with Christmas sermons because we're talking about birth and baby Jesus and not confrontation or killing things, but track with me here on what kindness does. If you have been around the last couple of weeks, you've heard me kind of tap on this verse, but Romans 8, 13 gives us a window and helps you see why I would say something like kindness confronts and kills selfishness. It's because he, Paul said this in, in the to letter to the church in Rome. He said, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So let's just pull out these two kind of words that I highlighted here. If you live according to the flesh, which is selfishness, I want what I want. And the thing about your flesh, I hate it for you, is you can't escape it, all right? Your flesh isn't a demon. You can't cast it out. You, can't, you, you cannot get rid of it. You can disciple it. You can allow it to continue to be crucified over and over again. But the only way that happens is by the Spirit. It's the Spirit doing that with you. That's why you have to be a Spirit-filled believer in Christ. And so if my natural inclination in the flesh is to be selfish, there's just no way around that. Teenagers, you're going to be selfish. Parents, you're going to be selfish. We are all going to be selfish. It's it's part of the fall. No one had to teach your kids how to be selfish. They just are, right? But what he says here, if by the Spirit you put to death, and that's the reason I said kill. There's got to be a mean streak to us if we're really in Christ, a mean streak against not the other people, but a mean streak against our flesh. He says, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, deeds of the body, you can just uh, you know, fill, in, fill in selfishness there for the sake of what we're talking about today. The Spirit is what kills that. So maybe you're asking yourself, well, okay, well, how does the Spirit kill selfishness? I'll go back to what we just talked about a second ago. 
What are the fruit of the Spirit? The fruit of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. So when those things find their way coming out of my life, they're proof positive that the Holy Spirit is actually in my life. And when kindness begins to be a habitual aspect, a habitual fruit in my life, what will happen because I'm a person that kindness is bursting forth in, selfishness slowly dies. And you look up and this person who used to be the one to which the world revolved around becomes a servant to the rest of the world. That is what Christ-centered Kindness is all about putting others first and letting it confront and kill our selfishness. There's a story, actually a Christmas story, that I think illustrates this pretty good. If you've got a Bible, go to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, um, we'll start at 18 and read to 25. Story about the birth of Christ. We're going to pick out a couple little things in the story, but I don't want to give you the whole context. I'm feeling festive. Uh, less grinchy than normal. Sun's out, like I said. Um, I'm going to read you the whole Christmas story today, 18 through 25. Now, the birth of Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph became, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, he resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, underline that word, we're going to come back to that word, considered. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear. Take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which means God with us. When Joseph woke up from the sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. I want you to think about Joseph here for a second and the keys to kindness that we see on display in his life. First of all, let's, let's purposely kind of check out verse 19. It says, and her husband, Joseph, he learns that she's got a baby. It's not his baby. Now, up until this moment, there's only one other person who knows that this baby is really from the Holy Spirit, and it's Mary. And she can tell Joseph these things, but again, fellas, he hears that kind of the way you would hear that. Mm, like, with doubt, let's just say. Best thing we can say is with doubt. And so Joseph, what is happening here? The Bible tells us, it gives us a little key into his character, clues about his character. It says, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame. Now, a lot of times we read these like they are synonymous, like they're two things that are similar. Like he's just and he doesn't want to put her to shame. But I want you to actually see those as two opposite ends of the spectrum. In, in that Jewish culture, if this happened to a man, now again, you need to understand something about what was going on in this whole marriage thing. This was an arranged marriage. They were betrothed, which means these two fathers got together and arranged and put this marriage together. Which again, if you're Joseph, you know, what we don't see even in him is him going to his dad and be like, come on, man. Did you do a background check? Like, here, here, here I am about to look like a chump in front of every, like we don't, we don't get any of that from Joseph. They're betrothed. And when it says he is a just man, the, the word there is kind of like he's, he, is, he is righteous. And what a righteous man. Again, 
if he was keeping the Israelite law in his justfulness, it would have been just for him to have her killed. He had kind of two options. He could definitely have her outed, he could out her, or he could have her killed. And good-hearted religious people would have said, way to go, Joseph, you're just. They would have seen him do that and said, that's a godly man. That's the tension that is on one side of Joseph. And in that, I think, is also the shame of feeling like he's been betrayed, the fear of what everybody else is going to think, the hurt that he feels. Because in his mind, the story, the only story that he can write at this point, because he has no evidence otherwise, the only story he can write is, I just was betrayed in the worst possible way. But the other side, and again, this is the opposite end of the tension, he was unwilling to put her to shame. He says, while I am fully ashamed of what has happened to me, I refuse to put her to shame. I'll divorce her quietly, and we'll move on from this. I'm not going to let how I was hurt continue to hurt other people. The hurt, this is, why, this is why I think God chose a man like Joseph. I choose to let the hurt stop with me. I'll divorce her quietly, and me and God will figure something else out. I refuse to hurt her. What we see in Joseph it's him making a decision in himself with all the evidence that he has to be about Mary. And again, track with what Mary, in his mind, again, we know how the story ends, but for the sake of us like not knowing how the story ends, be, sit with Joseph in this moment for a second. In his mind, all he thinks is, I just got betrayed. But somehow, and again, this is why I think God chose a man with this type of character. Somehow in his mind, even though she's done the, probably the worst thing she could possibly do to him in that moment, he still chooses to be about her more than he's about him. And that's what kindness does. See, kindness is when I make a decision in me to be about you. And that's not just when you do something wrong to me. This can even be when things are neutral. This can be when somebody you want to show appreciation to. Any act of kindness is when you make a decision in you to be about them. And this is hard, man, because regardless of how, like I said, regardless of how long we've been saved, there's still some aspects of you that are about you, but kindness is when I choose in me to be about you. The Bible gives us a key into Joseph's kindness, shows us why I think this is actually something that actually happened. See, in our culture, when somebody does something wrong to us, our knee-jerk reaction is to cancel them as fast as possible to either show them utter contempt and say, I'm done with you, you don't mean anything to me anymore, our relationship is over, or we do things to try to offend back, to try to get them back. And sometimes, again, we play all of these stupid games. Sometimes the thing I'll do to get you back is I'll just stonewall and I'll not talk to you. And when you ask me, is everything okay? I'll go, yeah. <laughs> when it's not. Don't elbow anybody. It's Christmas. All right. But I think Joseph shows us a good hint on how to stay kind. And it's that word consider. It says, but as he considered this, 
When I read just this stuff before the comma, but as he considers, what I see is someone who's been offended, but takes time to consider how to respond before they just let emotions lead them. It doesn't say explicitly here, but I'd be willing to use a little bit of a redemptive imagination and say that Joseph, as, a, as a, what I believe, again, why else would God pick him if he wasn't this, this God-fearing, God-honored, somewhat righteous man? I believe part of his, even his consideration is prayer. And I don't think it's too far within the stretch of imagination. Again, it's not in scripture, but I don't think it's too far within the stretch of imagination to say that Joseph likely even prayed about this circumstance. And his consideration was conversation. Not with other people, but with God. And how often is that how we treat conflict with each other? Somebody does something wrong to us. Oh, you're never going to believe what she said to me today. Well, have you talked to God about Like, you want to shut down some gossip real quick? <laughs> Somebody comes to you with something. Have you talked to God about that? Ooh, you hit him. You get him. Like, you give him a little bit, but then you hit him with that Jesus juke at the end. Ooh, have you talked to God about that? <laughs> See what happens. Uh, you know. Sooner or later, they'll stop coming to you. And see, I think Joseph had found himself at a kind option for Mary because he took time to consider what was a considerate thing to do. To say, I don't want to do what I want to do. I actually, even though she did the worst thing to me, what's the best thing I can do to her? Isn't it crazy how you see Jesus in Joseph before Joseph even knows Jesus? So he considers this, and eventually, thank goodness, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, <laughs> saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear. Take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. This is good news for Joseph. This is good news for us. And we see here Joseph being able to treat this woman who's going to be his wife in a way that will embody what the Christian family is supposed to be like. As Jesus comes and he shows who he is and he gives his life for us and he dies on the cross, we see now what we're supposed to be like. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Philippi and he helped them understand this attitude that was in Jesus that we even see on display in Mary and Joseph and their relationship, even preceding Jesus being born. We see that stuff, and then Jesus comes and he lives his life, and he manifests even some of those things that God was doing in their lives. And then Paul, in the book of Philippians, he shows up, and he's talking to that church, and he's telling them how to interact with each other. And he's saying, I need you to have the same attitude among you that Christ had. And he says these words to him. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Not your word, like, and thoughts are included in nothing, by the way. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. I would, again, I don't like adding to scripture, but I'm adding to scripture that's backed up by other scripture. When he says value others above yourself, that doesn't mean here's how I think about me, and I'm just going to put them right here. When he says value others above yourself, what he's saying there is, I need you to value others the way Jesus values them. And the way Jesus values them is he shows how valuable they are by the price he's willing to pay for them. And the price that Jesus paid for your enemy, for your friend, for the person that you are subconsciously still angry at, the price he paid for them was his life. So their value is Christ. Which when I go, okay, well, how, well, how do I value them above myself? Do I treat them a little bit better than I would treat me? No, I treat them the way Jesus would. That's what it looks like to value them above myself. 
So he says, value them above yourself, not looking to your own interests. This goes back to the whole self, selfishness and all those things. But look to the interest of others. It's a good verse, but man, it's hard. He goes on from here. If you can keep reading in Philippians 2, he says, look out for the interests of others. And then he points their attention to Christ. He says, Christ was in very nature God. And then in some of the translations, it says he was in very nature God, but he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. There's that word again. Even though I could use my God card, I'm gonna consider that something to be let go of temporarily so that I can show them what it looks like to lay down a life and sacrificially serve those who do not deserve. And I know we're talking about kindness and we talked about what it looks like within a church, but I think we're foolish, guys, if we think that we can come in and show kindness at church and it be real and lasting and like not fake fruit if we're not actually living out a kindness at home. See, the kindness that we'll experience between each other here I believe is fruit that's carried into the church that was actually blooming and blossoming in your home. I believe kind homes are what lead to a kind church home, a kind church family. Kind families with your last name leads to kind families with the last name McDonough Christian Church family. And I'll be the first to admit, sometimes the people at home are the hardest to be kind to. Sometimes the people we hurt the most are actually the people we love the most. Sometimes the people we offend and we treat wrong are the people, sometimes we would never talk to a boss or a coworker the way we talk to a spouse. If you were coaching a little league team, there's no way you talk to the other kids on the team the way you talk to yours. Sometimes the people that we love the most that are in our own homes are the people we're the most unkind to. Now, before I beat you up on all that, I don't wanna beat you up on that. I'm just as guilty as you are. I wanna help us find, maybe find the reason why. So if relationships are kind of like a bank account, well, there's transactions, right? There's deposits and withdrawals. And the reality about people that you're at home with is there's just more transactions, right? You're bumping into them, you're talking with them, you have more things that are coming and going. And what happens oftentimes is because we're family, because we'll leave, and even if everybody the morning like, at least this is Christian's home. Even though everybody is angry at each other in the morning, where are my socks? I can't find my clothes. Well, you should have left the car. You know, my battery's dead because you went to find something in the car and you left a light on. And these things, again, never happen in any of our homes. But like, all those things are going on. And then no matter what, you'll still, I love you. I love you. I love you. Bye. And everybody leaves. And they go this other way, but everybody got told I love you. And we can say that with our words. But what happens a lot of times in homes, like with our own family, and I'm, husband and wife relationships, please lean in here. It's because we become so familiar with the relationship, we take the love as a given. But remember, kindness is what love looks like. And it doesn't just need to be talked about, it has to be seen sometimes to be a keen reminder that it actually is there. Because you bump into somebody, you bump into these arguments, you start going, why are you mad? Well, you hear this thing, you hear all this stuff. We'd be like, well, you, and husbands, you ever said this? Well, you know I love you. <laughs> right, I do. I just need to see it, you know? Like, have we ever been there, right? 
Okay? And again, hear me on this, guys. Everybody, hear me on this. Jesus didn't treat us that way. He didn't just holler down from heaven. You know I love you. Do better. (laughs) He's like, I'm going to show you. Pull them sandals off. Let me wash those stinky feet. Let me go this cross for you. Let all of your iniquity be mine. I'm choosing in me to be about you. And guys, that's what kindness looks like. And, and what I hope we embody is people who live out this amazing verse in 1 John three eighteen. It says, little children, again, the kids have to be kind. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. This is the key verse for kindness. I can, I can say I love you. You can know I love you. It can, you know, I can say it in a text message. I can do all these other types of things. But I also, I need to do it in deed and in truth. So what I want to walk you through, again, we're trying to be my best to be like incredibly practical for us today, is I want to leave you today with three habits of kind people. Again, a lot of times we have uphill dreams for what our marriages are going to be like. We have uphill dreams for what our our parenting relationships with our kids, uphill dreams for our finances. But the reality is we have downhill habits. We wonder why we're not getting to the same place. Our habits are not matching where we want to be and and what we want our relationships to look like. And so I think there are three habits, and they come in the form of questions that I think lead us to being truly kind people. The first question is this. Oh, need that. How can I help? How can I help? It's so sim- Look, this is so simple, it's hard. How can I help? You walk into the house after long days of work, and you've been asking everybody else at work this question. How can I help you today? This is, this is why I have to pray. Man, it is war. You think that you can go ask and live with everybody at work, and how can I help? How can I serve you? How can I serve you? Especially if you, those, you saints who are in retail right now, all right? sales right now to, to, to spend your whole nine to five day doing all that and then come home. And again, when we all get home, home is like we cross that threshold and this is the place where we want to be about self probably more than anything else. But this is, this is, this is the battle cry for the nine to five worker is this quiet moment before you walk in the door. Turn the car off. Put your phone on your lap. Say, Jesus, the most important part of my day is getting ready to start. Help. Get out and you go in. Instead of going in, you know, taking the suit off, taking the tie off, you know, taking whatever you wear to work off, you know, and going and, you know, plopping down and grabbing a remote control and Netflix and say, when's dinner ready? You know, before we go do all that type of stuff, walking in the house and going, hey, how can I help? How's y'all's day been? What can, what, you know, what, what can I do? You know, what, what do you need? And this, this is not a gender-specific thing. This is, this is all of us. Going, how can I help? Teenagers in the room, you got a whole winter break, right? Listen to me. I'm going to talk to you for a second. You got a whole winter break, all right? For the love of God, get on your parents' good side, okay? <laughs> it's simple, man. Like, you, you maybe just once a day. This is my challenge to teenagers in the room. Once a day, just ask a mom, a dad, whoever you're in the house with, hey, how can I help? You want to be a friend that saves the life of some of your other teenage buddies? Hey, he looked like he's struggling. How can I help? Something, something, how can I be praying for you? How can I help? 
See, when we, when we start to have a habit of being people who ask this question, what's going to happen is you become the person that people come to do when they're in times of need because you've made a habit of asking this question, you will eventually get to the place where you don't even have to ask it anymore. They're just going to start coming to you. They're, you're going to walk in the door, wife's going to hand you the baby. Boom, handoff, your, your turn. <laughs> you don't even have to say anything anymore. Next question. Who can I thank? What if you were able to give this Christmas? All right, here's a, here's a very cheap gift, a thank you. Being considerate, just, just giving them gratitude. Now again, it's not enough to just go, well, you know I'm thankful you clean my underwear. Like I wear them every day. Sometimes you actually gotta, hey, thank you, look cold out there. I'm glad I got these clothes and they're clean. Thank you. And here's the truth that I've learned about this in my own home. Inexpressed gratitude is ingratitude. It's wrong of me to think that my silence should be interpreted as gratitude. It was silence. I've left it all up to chance. I'm going to go, well, it's on you for not thinking the best about me. No, I'm gonna do everything I can to go above and beyond to know how you think about me or know how, know how appreciative I am. And so look, let's give the gift of just saying a simple thank you. You know, thank you. Thank you for what you're doing. You got an employer who gave you a Christmas bonus this year? Like, please don't be someone who works for an employer who gave you a Christmas bonus this year and not be one of the people who write a handwritten thank you note. Protect your witness, man. Thank you. Thank you so much for this. I didn't deserve this. Thank you. This wasn't in our contract. Thank you for this. Last thing I would say, this is my favorite because I'm Italian. What can I forget? This is where you have to embrace your inner good fella. Forget about it. Come on, guys. I guess Christmas. Forget about it. Let's say it again. Forget about it. It feels good, doesn't it? Forget about it. Embrace it. Forget it. What can I forget? Okay, yeah, that happened this year. Yeah, that was a thing. Yeah, there was conflict there. But, man, can, I, can we forget about this? Now, again, I'm not asking you to do anything that Jesus hasn't done for you. I'm not asking you to do anything that Jesus doesn't ask you to do already. We talked about this in Ephesians. Be kind to one another. What does that kindness look like? Kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. I don't care how offended you were at something somebody did to you this week, this month, this year. It pales in comparison to the offense that you have given God because of your sin. You can't out of, they couldn't out offend you and how you offended God because of your sin. Give them some grace. Be willing to forget about it. When the Bible is talking about love, we read this oftentimes at weddings. It's the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. One of the things in there, you probably know it. Love keeps no record of wrong. Love keeps no record of wrong. So maybe this year, you need to attach something to your forgiveness. And when you say, I forgive you, know that you're also saying this offense is no longer able to take up storage space on the hard drive of my heart. I will not reopen this file when I need evidence. See, it's easy to forgive people, but what we do is we say, I forgive you, and then we save that file 
and we keep it on our little hard drive. We store it in the cloud or the heart. I don't know, whatever you want to call it. We store it. But does Jesus do that to you? No. If he says love keeps no record of wrong and he's a perfect embodiment of love, well, friend, he has no record of your wrongs. And how dare us go, I'm going to keep this file. And the next time they do something that's even similar. Oh, yeah, I remember. Last time you did the same thing. And look, some of you are saved and you're good to go on this. But let me tell you where I fall on this. If somebody will do something wrong, another offense, and I've forgiven them for something already, they'll do something wrong that's kind of another thing. I won't talk to them about it, but do you know who I'll talk to about it? Me. In regards to if you ever talk to them about it, if you're still pulling the file up and talking to you about it, it hasn't been deleted yet. And so some of you need to make war against your thoughts. When, so, when Satan tries to bring back up something that somebody else did to you, you go, no, 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 that's been deleted at the cross. That's deleted at the cross. That, that, that Jesus' blood has covered that offense from them. I refuse to use that as a part of my narrative to write a story against them that's already been forgiven. It's on, it's gone. So in kindness, we ask questions like, how can I help? Who can I thank? And what can I forget? Knowing as we get ready to receive communion, that is the place where your sins were deleted, where they were unrecoverable. When we come and we take this bread and we take this juice, it represents the fact that this, there is nothing more powerful to erase what we have done offensive against God. And we see Jesus who came in a manger as the visible kindness of God. They're hanging on a cross as the visible kindness of God. Much different scenario, much different environment. Oh, the wooden, you know, the, the wooden cradle becomes a wooden cross and there we see Jesus crucified for our sins. But there we see the kindness of God fully on display. I'm willing to put my needs, my wants, my preference, to lay that aside and to choose you and to choose my Father's glory. And I pray as you receive that communion, you're brought into that reality and that truth. And you begin to ask yourselves those three questions and you leave here today pondering your answers so that you can give the gift of kindness this Christmas. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We thank you that you are God with us. You are Emmanuel. And the love we're talking about today there's no doubt that it is reckless love. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. People may even be offended. We may even get ostracized because of the love that we show if it is love like this. But we're willing. We have no other choice because we see you there on a cross willing to go whatever lengths it takes to restore us to you. Break unity. So Jesus, make us a kind people. Let us see the kindness of the cross and let it invade our Christmas. In your name.